0: and the USOPC in no way warrants that content of featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show.
1: People say it's like being kicked off a cliff in a trash can. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival
0: of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games,
1: is about to begin. This is going to be...
2: Hello and welcome to Olympic Fever. I'm your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Hello, Allison. Hello, Jill. Today is the first episode where we are going to go in-depth on a sport so that you, the listener, can be a much more educated viewer while you're watching the Olympics. We're kicking off this coverage with bobsled today, and I don't know about you, Allison. I love watching bobsled because it's so fast and it looks like so much fun, but I also have a really hard time watching it because the cameras are set up at different points on the track, and when you're watching a race, it's just like, whoosh, 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 and it's really hard to get a feel for what's going on, And, and it's not even like you get to see almost a whole race. Sometimes it feels like they truncate it, too.
3: Right. They never show it live because there are several rounds. And so it's already happened and I bet it takes a long time getting the sled out of the track and the next sled onto the track. So they always truncate that. It always feels like you're watching something that happened a long time ago. So you don't get that minute by minute excitement. Right. Right. And it is very exciting. I mean, they're going down these crazy tracks at crazy speeds and it's, very exciting i would think to be there and watch it but on television it just doesn't seem to translate
2: no not not the way they cover it today but um but there's still a way to watch it better and get some i think more enjoyment out of it and because we learned a lot of really cool things in talking with some bobsledders and doing some research about it so um i'm really excited to share what we've learned with you And uh, we talked with U.S. bobsledders Nick Cunningham and Lauren Gibbs. Nick is a pilot who has been to the Vancouver and Sochi Olympics. And Lauren's a brake woman who is trying out for her first Olympics this year. Before we get to Allison's story, we need to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is Stephen Holcomb. Stephen Holcomb was a major force, not just in U.S. bobsled, but in the entire world of the sport. He started out as a push athlete in the late 1990s and switched over to driving. And as he became a top bobsledder, he started losing his vision due to a rare degenerative eye disease. His first Olympics was Torino, and at that point, he was pretty much driving by feel due to his poor eyesight. So after that, Holcomb's vision worsened to the point where it was questionable whether he could still participate in the sport at all. And he got massively depressed and he attempted suicide. But then there was this little bright spot where an experimental surgery um, could possibly correct his vision. And for him, it worked and it corrected his vision to 2020. At the Vancouver Olympics, he piloted his four-man sled, uh, which was nicknamed the Night Train, to a gold medal, and this was a huge deal because it was the first gold medal in U.S. men's bobsled since 1948. And then at Sochi, he uh, tried to repeat, but uh, his two teams got bronze medals in the two-man and the four-man events. This past May, Holcomb was training in Lake Placid for the Pyeongchang Olympics, and died suddenly in his sleep. Toxicology reports found a lethal combination of alcohol and prescription sleeping pills in his system. And to say that Holcomb's death has left a huge hole in the sport is an understatement. And if you're going to watch any coverage of bobsled during the Pyeongchang Olympics, in the United States at least, you are invariably going to hear Holcomb mentioned at every possible moment of every day of coverage of men's bobsled, if not more often. So when we talked to USA Bobsled and Skeleton to arrange our interviews, we were asked whether we could talk about Holcomb. And we weren't really interested in talking about him per se. We were really more interested in how the U.S. athletes were preparing mentally for dealing not with just the media onslaught that happens to them once every four years, but for the constant questioning about their friend that they had lost and were grieving. Because really, how do you deal with all of this media scrutiny and grief while you're competing at the most important event for your sport? Unfortunately for us, the athletes had just gotten back from a major media event in Park City, Utah, where they'd already had to go through a lot of Stephen Holcomb talk. And that was understandably really hard for them. And they kindly requested that we not bring up this topic. So, if you were hoping to get more info on Holcomb in this episode, that's not really going to happen. However, when we talked with Nick Cunningham, he brought him up from time to time during our interview, so we kind of rolled with it where we could all right, and with that, what can you tell us about bobsled Allison
3: on a on a happier note on a happier note I mean it really is yes.
2: it's It's really sad that it it was so tragic and and so shocking when Stephen Holcomb died. Yeah. And and it's just it's got to be it, it's got it's got to be rough for the team and it's really got to it's it's gonna suck I, I'm really gonna say it's this coverage is gonna suck because they're gonna talk about yeah. him every single race and that's
3: all they're gonna talk about and yeah. they shouldn't because these athletes are amazing the sport is <laughs> incredible and I'm sorry for them that they're gonna have to deal with us
2: yeah. It's so, it's yeah, they it's were really, great. They were great Yeah, they were great people, people and the and the the athleticism, the athleticism that is involved in their sport, oh unbelievable. Yes. So.
3: I felt I, I felt very old and very short. <laughs> all, all day long. And very <laughs> and very out of shape.
2: <laughs> but how did this become such an athletic sport? Bobsled
3: was invented in Switzerland in the late eighteenth century and And it was typical party time for the wealthy, and that's how it became popular. Um, It first appeared in the Olympic program at the first Winter Games in 1924 at just the four-man event. Um, The two-man was added in 1932, and women in a two-man or two-woman event joined in uh, 2002. Um, You'll hear it both referred to as bobsled or bobsleigh. Um, there's really no difference between the words. It's sort of lift, elevator, boot, trunk kind of English versus American terminology. Um, and speaking of terminology, things that you will hear uh, both in interviews and in the coverage there are th- uh, three kinds of uh, bobsledders. There is the pilot or driver, he drives, There are uh, there is the brakeman who uh, will use the brakes, put a stop to the sled. And then in the foreman, there are also two pushers, and their only job is to get that thing started. Um, In both events, the two men and the foreman, the pilot and the brakeman also push, but that's not their major role. Um, It is called a sled or a sleigh, and it runs on runners. So those are the blades or the sliders at the bottom of the sled. Um, Steering is done through uh, D-rings attached to bungee cords that the driver holds at the front. And something that we found very interesting was that the sled and the crew both have a maximum weight. Um, In two-man bobsled, it's about 860 pounds for the sled and crew. Two-woman, right now, it's about 683 pounds, and that's been reduced in the past couple years. And the four-man, the maximum weight is 1,390 pounds. And in all of that, about half of that weight is going to the sled itself. Um, The latex suits they wear are called speed suits. And underneath, they wear something called a burn vest, which is a special shirt worn under the speed suit to protect from ice burns in case of crashes. And then on their feet, they're going to wear spikes so that they can grip into the ice as they're running and pushing off. Um, The bobsled tracks are about 4,000 feet long. They'll vary a little bit between uh, tracks. They have at least 15 turns, and all of the uh, tracks will have a turn called a labyrinth and one called a Peterson, Peterson named after the inventor. Labyrinth because it's a three-turn combination. I didn't entirely understand it, but it looked scary. Let's just put it at that. Um, the sleds will go down the course at about 75 to 80 miles per hour, though. Sometimes they will go as fast as 90 or 95 on certain courses and the race takes less than a minute and the athletes can feel up to five G's of force as they're going down the track. Um, the Olympic races have three heats and the winner has the lowest combined time. So it's not the fastest single run. They add them all together. Uh, for the winner, and you'll also hear them talk about the line a lot and that's the fastest path down the course and it generally will be down the middle not too high up on the walls or or too low onto the track Um, but they'll sometimes that varies and and we talk to them about that as well so that's all the words you need to know that when we talk to Nick and Lauren so that you know what they're talking about
2: Before we get into excerpts from Lauren and Nick's interviews, I wanted to acknowledge that we know this episode is long, but these two had a lot of great information that gives us the understanding one needs to become a better fan of the sport. So strap yourselves in and enjoy this ride. So I was looking, uh, doing some research last night, Uh and a couple days ago she posted this picture where she, her body is almost bobsled ready. Yeah, and she's got these sick abs. Well, Why I'm looking
1: Boardman at. <laughs> <laughs> oh. don't matter. Let me
2: tell you something. I'm looking at her, and I
3: never have felt so old and out of shape <laughs> in my entire life. I'm
1: probably older than you realize. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you're a heck of a lot younger than I am, so we'll just put it that way. <laughs> That's funny. So, but yeah, almost bobsled ready. Yes. Yeah. What, what is almost bobsled ready? Well,
1: for uh, it's unfortunate you know, for the women's weight. Uh, so, I came into the sport, I was 205 pounds and, and how, how tall are you? 5'10". Okay. And so I was powerlifting and crossfitting and getting my MBA, so I just didn't really care about my weight. But bobsled has weight minimums and maximums, so the maxim, the minimum is the minimum the sled can be and the maximum is what the sled and the athletes can be to make it an even, even playing field for people. So, obviously, a heavier object traveling downhill is going to be faster. And if I'm, if I'm big and strong and I'm pushing a lighter object, I'm going to push it faster than someone who's tiny and doesn't weigh as much. So um, about two years ago, they dropped the overall weight for women by 15 kilos. And they had a plan to drop another 15 kilos. So they took five kilos from the sled. So the sled minimum went down five kilos. But then the other 10 kilos was expected to come from the athletes. So in order for me to put myself in the best position this year to be able to slide with all three pilots, I have to be at a weight that's lower than my body wants to be. So, yeah. It's not fun. No. (laughs) I mean, Um, I look great, but it's not fun.
3: No. So (laughs) I would think that
1: that would be... Counterintuitive? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a power sport. So the fact that, you know, you're trying to be as strong and fast as possible, but you can only weigh a certain amount in order to compete. Sometimes a little much.
3: See, now that opens the very uncomfortable question. Did the men's weight change? No.
1: No, that's <laughs> well, actually that was, that's my <laughs> that's question. That's right. your question. Yeah. No, my, my question. My mom was in news. I know what your question is. <laughs> no, my my
3: <laughs> question coming from gymnastics and figure skating mm-hmm. and those
1: sports, are you seeing
3: uh eating disorders coming into the sport
1: um no i think that you know bobsled is not a big enough sport i mean i think you can have eating disorders in any sport right because we're in skin-tied suits and we're you're videoed or photographed and you know put on the world stage for anybody to see so i don't think that the sport dictates the the eating disorder unfortunately but, you know, in my own self, it's like I can tell in the morning if I've gained weight because abs 7 and 8 started to recede, you know. So it's definitely, it's definitely been tough because now, you know, 180 used to be where I felt comfortable and now 175 feels uncomfortable because I know I need to be 170. So it's, I think it's unfortunate in that respect and who knows how I will react or what I'll do when I'm done with bobsled and how I'll feel about gaining weight or losing weight. But right now, it's just, you know, that metal is on the line based on how much I weigh, which can be frustrating because it should just be based on how fast I am or how good of an athlete I am or how hard I work. But the fact that my weight plays such a big part in that can be frustrating at times. What was the rationale behind the weight change? <laughs> okay. I, no, that was my question. So thank you. Um, I think the rationale was that, you know, bobsled's a, a small sport and there's not a ton of five 5'10, 180 pound women out there that are fast and strong and want to push a bobsled, and I think they felt like it was a barrier to entry for uh, women from smaller countries, um, and the women's field in the past has had an issue of fielding a full field of 20 participants, or 22 participants, um, and then so the goal was to up the participation so that we could potentially introduce a new discipline of women's foreman. But the problem is...
2: It's also on my list. The problem
1: is, like, these... The problem really is it's it's funding, right? Bobsled's an expensive sport. Sleds are expensive. Shipping costs are expensive. Housing is expensive. And even if we had a full field, we have these huge four-man sleds that you'd put women in. And I've done women's four-man, and it was an interesting experience, but we were tossed around like rag dolls because there's so much room in the sled. So really if we can't come up with the funding then the weight drop didn't really matter and so um right cuz you would have to get smaller sleds. we'd get we need, smaller we need to get newer new, new okay. sleds yeah yeah because
3: you're using the men's yeah,
1: sleds yeah so you have now you have smaller women going into bigger sleds that doesn't make business sense in the sport so i don't know
2: let's let's get into a little bit of what this stuff costs cuz mm-hmm. i think i read uh, last night that runners can cost 5 grand
1: uh, they can right. cost up to eight grand. Okay. Yeah. I think the it's like six to eight grand, I think, for runners. Who buys that? The drivers. So the, the athletes. Drivers. The drivers. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> why Why do the drivers buy that? Honestly, honestly, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, who, I guess, you know. Who came up yeah, with that yeah. system? Like, I mean, I guess it's all about trying to get a competitive advantage. I'm sure that's where it has started. Oh, you, right? want,
2: you want control over your. Well, I mean, it's like
1: i guess the federation could pr- provide them but you know like i said the the federation doesn't have a ton of money either so i think you know as far as drivers are going to start buying stuff because your your athletes are going to start buying their own things because they want a competitive advantage and then i think the federation potentially sees okay well you guys are buying your own runners anyway so why do we need to give you runners okay. so i think it's like a you know catch 22 maybe <laughs> i don't know so,
3: on that note, when you're talking about buying renters and, and choosing, how do the teams get put together? You know, do you have much control over who
2: your driver is and who this you get This is a to, good question because I noticed over the last couple of seasons you've driven with different people. Yeah,
1: I mean, as a brakeman, break you don't really have much control. Uh, I mean, the pilots obviously have some you know, requests and who they would prefer in their sled for whatever reason. And usually it's the fastest brakeman is going to go with the best pilot and so on down the line. So the coaches have a big part in it. And then when it comes to world championships or the Olympics, there's a selection committee that uh, takes care of that. But for the women's side, it's a little different. For two men, you can kind of switch people around and not have a huge impact. But for four men, I think the goal is to really get a team together that works well because there's so much that goes into loading at the same time and riding position that changing around every week could be detrimental to performance. So you got to get used to each other. Right, exactly and how it works. Yeah.
2: So we'll go back to cost. What do you have to buy, and what
1: what what does it range in cost? So the spikes are 400 bucks around there, depending on if you get the newest ones or you know Gen 2, Gen 3 here. And how long would they last? Um, so I I mean it depends. So I have spikes that I purchased my rookie season and this will be my fourth season using them but I only use them for practice and then my race spikes I only use for like push championships or races and then I have a, a, another pair of spikes that I bought that are a little small so I've just used them for the push track so you know they can last up to six seven years plus or just a season depending on what you're using them for um, and then burn vests we buy our own burn vests and now they have different varieties. You can buy a best for 100 bucks. Mine was, I think, 275 or something like that. And then uh, coaching. You can pay for your own coaching and uh, facility use, depending on where you're training. Not everybody gets to train at the Olympic c- Training Center. Or not. you can't always get all the training you need at an Olympic Training Center. So one of the things that we don't have here is an, an iced push track. So I spent seven, almost close to seven weeks in Calgary. So you rent your own car, and you find your own place to stay, and then you pay for your ice time. And then my coach uh, lives in a different state, so I spent some time with my coach this summer, and so I paid for a rental car and then paid to train at that facility and stuff like that. So the, the fees associated with the sport are different for each athlete, depending on what the athlete needs and what their goals are.
2: What's the suit run?
1: The speed suit? Yeah, speed suit luckily we don't pay for those i don't know that they're all that expensive i don't know under armor
2: oh, uh, yeah, graciously gives
1: them to okay. us and makes them for us and then you know you're kind of it's part of your team kit every year is, if you're going to compete in a race they're going to give you a speed suit i don't know women's bobsled has only been in the olympics since 2002 the u.s women's team has been dominant since and in this last quad especially you know we were dominant before and then we had two olympians come back so we're even dominant more dominant now and so uh just to make the team is probably going to be harder than competing in the Olympics now I can't say that because I've never been in the Olympics but you know it's just uh it's a it's probably the most talented group of women I've ever been associated with that's pretty exciting yeah
2: that is it's cool it's gotta be terrifying terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
1: not all of us can have the dream and we all have the same one so. so how many women go um. Hopefully, there will be three sleds. Okay. So two nations will get three sleds, and I think two other nations will get two sleds. So we'll get two sleds for sure, and hopefully, we'll be one of the nations that get three. So it'd be three pilots and three brakemen. Okay. And I think we'll have a, a team of nine. So because there's always a couple, they, right. they swap out. Mm-hmm. Right. Is yeah. That, and alternates. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And and the qualifying season is pretty long. It's not just one event. That right. That it's, it's, qualifies it's seven World
1: Cups, okay. but it's like, it's everything, right? We started our qualifications in July and our last season ended in March or April. Sorry. I was on ice until April. So there wasn't a lot of break in between, but it's, a, it's a different year, you know, so right. first time in the sled leg, you know, it's funny. I can still remember. It, it was, it was kind of just disorienting because you don't know what to expect. Um, and Lake Placid is one of the rougher tracks because it's a very technical track. So sometimes the fastest way to, around a corner is to hit a wall, which seems kind of counterintuitive, but that's just how it works. So like, generally, nine times out of ten, if you after you turn through three, you're gonna tap the sled's gonna tap on the on the left. And I know that now. But when you don't know that, it's like it's kind of like if I were to blindfold you and drive you to your house from your office, you'd be like, okay, I know exactly where you're going. But if I were to throw you in the back of a truck and then drive you somewhere random, you'd be like, what the heck? So that's kind of what it's like. People say it's like being kicked off a cliff in a trash can. And it it can feel like that sometimes, but for the most part, it's just very disorienting because you don't know, when you're new, you don't know where you are on the track. You don't know if what you're feeling is is normal, and you don't know when it's going to end. That sounds like the
3: worst roller coaster ever. (gasps) But it's only a minute long, so right. it is
1: the longest minute of your life the first time,
3: does it physically hurt?
1: It can if you're not in the right position. Okay. And if, if the pilot hits the wall hard enough and you're out of position, yeah, it can hurt. So
2: as you travel around, what are some of your favorite tracks to do?
1: Um, St. Moritz, I, I think everybody kind of has the same favorite. St. Moritz is cool because of the history and it's the only natural track that they make by hand every year. Wow. And so it's very quiet and it's, it's a beautiful place. Day is also really cool because there's these two corners called the S-curves and you kind of feel like you're being scooped up in the back. Whistler's fun because it's the fastest track in the world and you know Whistler's great. And I like to go to the Lululemon in Canada because it's like getting a discount with the exchange rate <laughs> so that's always fun and then I love Lake Placid because it's my first track and it's like coming home. Is it easier
2: having a rougher track or a more technical track as your home track? Do I would, think
1: I, get, yeah, it, absolutely. I think out. that if I had slid on Saint Moritz first, every track would be terrible because it's the smoothest ride. So after like Placid, everything else feels like a cakewalk.
2: <laughs> How much faster is Whistler?
1: Uh I don't know what top end speed here is, but top end speed for Whistler for a four man is like ninety five miles an hour, Jesus. something like that. It's the fastest track in the world yeah wow that's the only track where you you're bobsledding from corner one like most tracks you're kind of like like here it's like unnerving because like when you my my remember my first time down you're like oh this isn't bad and then you get to corner four you're like holy crap now we're bobsledding but that that kind of happens in corner one in, in whistler well have you had a bad crash i've crashed how many times have i crashed i crashed three or four times four no i've been lucky so i've crashed four times and I wouldn't consider any of the times I've crashed bad, but I've also crashed with very experienced pilots. So I feel like when you crash with someone who knows what they're doing, they're not crashing because they they don't know what they're doing. They're potentially crashing because they misjudge a curve, they're trying something different. So, have you seen bad crashes? I mean, every crash looks bad, bad because yeah. it's like it's like it the, the sled makes so much noise because it's like parts of the sled that, shouldn't, that aren't smooth cutting into the ice, and then every once in a while a brakeman shoots at the back, so it just looks bad. Like I've never been able to stay in the sled, which is, really makes me mad, because it's like it's something I need to figure out, but
3: uh, yeah. So you've gotten shot out of the back of the sled? Oh, uh,
1: I usually kick out. So it's by choice. Okay. Yeah. You're... The first one, they yeah. kind of sucked me out, but I was really confused as to what was going on, because um, I was like, this doesn't seem normal. Then I was like, I think I'm upside down. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was like, well, I can't hold on, and I feel burning on my back. So I'm just gonna let go and see what happens. So, yeah, know. Are you safer? You're out safer in or the in, sled. In, in the okay. sled, absolutely. It's, absolutely, because if especially if you don't know where you are on the track, the sled can get to a point where it stops and loses momentum because it's not. It's there's a lot of it's, it's creating a lot of friction, so that sled can start moving backwards, and you can. You can, yeah. Yeah, that would not. So if you kick out and you don't get out of the sled, and you don't get out of the track, I mean, then it could it could, not be a fun experience to yeah. get run over by a 365-pound sled.
2: When do you break? At I know, at, I know at the end, but, uh, like, do you know where the finish line is? Yes.
1: Or? Okay. How, how can you tell? I count the corners. Okay. Yeah. Oh.
3: Yeah, so you've got the, the track memorized.
1: I mean, I have, like, Placid memorized. There are some tracks that are harder to know when you're done. Like, I really hate Breaking in Park City because I always pop up early, and I really pride myself on knowing where I am. And there's a part in that track called Low Point where it feels like you're done, because it's flat, but it's not. And so the number of times I've popped, I'm like, crap, <laughs> and they go back down. So my rule is if I pop up on a pilot early, I owe them coffee. Yeah. because yeah, that's one that one tenth of a second. Oh, if that's a tenth then I should just go home. You hope it's just hundredth. Yeah. <laughs> tenth is a lot in our sport. Yeah, that's true. But well, yeah. Braking is uh it's easy. That's the easy part. You're done by that point, right? Where physically are the brakes? Between my legs. Okay. So I hop in, I have a seat and then I'm like this and they're here. So I just pop up look where I am and then break and then you kind of like look around the pilot's head so you can see how hard to pull and yeah you don't want to pull too hard and then if it doesn't make it all the way up to the top uh you have to push the sled out of the outrun and that's not fun
2: do you worry about accidental farting (laughs) no it happens it happens yeah do you get to breathe much but yeah because you have it just sucks
1: because if I've Load and fart, then it's like I'm basically just farting on myself. between my legs.
2: Have you? Did you get to go to the test event? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How's, how's that
1: track? Um, it's interesting. It's <laughs> you it's, use uh, that
2: word a lot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you no. Know, trying to be politically correct, I guess. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, it's interesting. You know, it's um, there's definitely some spots where you catch some air, and um, you know, there's definitely some corners that can just end your Olympics right then and there. It's not one of the more technical and dangerous tracks, like, you know, like Blasted Curve 18 is notorious for flipping sleds, and uh, 50-50 is a, a tra- is a corner that one of our teammates named because only 50% of the sleds are making it through upright. So it's not a track like that, but it, there's definitely some speed killers, which, you know, this is a sport of speed. And so it, it, was, my, it was my first time in Korea. Unfortunately, I got sick while I was out there, so oh, wow. that wasn't fun. Making weight was no problem, but <laughs> oh, <laughs> after that, yeah. Uh, but you know, it is what it is; it
2: happens. So you are like the veteran.
4: Yeah. The veteran. How yeah.
2: does that? How does that feel being the veteran?
4: Um, it's good. It's it's a, uh, you know, it's it's it adds a, a different kind of stress going in, into an Olympic year. Um, how so? Um, just knowing that kind of you want to make sure that the team is as prepared as possible. Um, you, you definitely, it's hard not to put extra stress on yourself knowing that you are the, the veteran. Um, but it's definitely when I step on the ice, and the least, that's the last thing I'm going to think about, um, you know, everyone, I, I'm only the veteran in the U S you know, to the rest of the world, I'm, I'm still kind of, you know, uh, uh newer pilot um you know i have really going into my eighth season as a as a driver and that's kind of when you start actually like learning how to really put it all together so
2: really do you feel that
4: oh yeah i still i mean we still learn day in day out you still learn uh a lot we're still all students of of the sport um until the day you retire as as a pilot It's, it's you're never You'll never be a hundred percent. I mean Holcomb was a 20 year veteran in the sport and he was still learning stuff every time we'd step on the ice um so that's that's kind of how how we are so it's even though I'm a veteran here, I'm definitely just one of the many in the world.
2: when you look at the other other um, drivers in the world, like what do you what do you see like oh this is the level I have to get to you may not know how to get there but
4: um just yes I mean everyone's kind of in a different some guys are really really good pushers and their equipment's a little bit lower some are you know decent pushers but their equipment is really good um you know some people have different runners so there's a lot of variables that play into what makes a good bobsledder you have to kind of have the the three components to be successful on that day you have to be a good pusher you have to have good equipment and you have to have good runners and so once if all those things come together and you have a good drive you're gonna you're gonna start winning some races so so
2: let's go back to basics a little bit Mm -hmm. getting into it we're gonna go get to equipment in a little while (laughs) Uh, you put two to four people Mm -hmm. two or four people in a sled you go down a hill as fast as possible yes that's the basics of bobsledding um what would you add to that to take your basic i watch bobsled once every four years fan to make them more educated what should we be looking for
4: when we watch a bobsled run the the technology is is a lot i mean if you look at a sled and you're watching on tv every sled looks the exact same when you're actually like there looking at the sleds, every sled is completely different um, from just the body shape, little things, every team's doing their own wind tunnel testing, what they think is the best possible sled, what we think is the best possible sled. Um, so when you do that, it's a, you know, we have the best engineers in in motorsports working on our equipment and over in Europe, they have the best engineers in, in their field working on their stuff and that's kind of what we're doing. So we are as close to motorsports as you can get without having a motor like it's there we, we have some very very good engineers from from some, some some of the top teams in uh, NASCAR and, and IndyCar kind of looking over our stuff
3: do they ask you in terms like how do they work with you
4: um they just ask for my input what am I feeling what am I I uh, you know what? would I like to change? What? Would I It's all kind of. It comes down to preference. What? What do we like? What do we feel more comfortable with? And I'm one of those drivers. that's kind of like let's not overcomplicate it. Like I'll figure it out. Like I don't. I don't have a style to where I've been driving so long that I have a particular style. Um, you know, I I will adapt to what we what we have, and we will kind of figure it out and move from there.
3: So what kind of different styles?
4: <laughs> um, do, some, do different
3: drivers have? So
4: yeah. some people like to ha- like. Uh, have really direct steering where you don't really we have D-rings, that's how we steer is you pull right to go right, left to go left some people, like myself, I don't like to really pull I I like to kind of just pull a little bit on on my D-ring and make that a significant turn, where some guys like to have a lot of rope and they're they're really kind of pulling Um, I don't really know the best way to write that down, but it's you know, they'll have to pull a lot of rope to turn the same amount where I just barely pull, and it turns. So it's like a, a tight versus a loose? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Idea? Some people have tighter steering, some have looser steering. Um, you know, the bungees in the front, kind of what snaps the runners back to center. Some people like real stiff, thicker bungees, and some like real thin bungees. So it kind of, it's all, all preference.
3: And would that change for you depending on the course?
4: It can, okay. uh, it can. Um, for me, I usually keep them the same. Usually, yeah. But there's, a, I mean, some guys, some tracks. This track is a very abrupt left-right changing. It's a very hard track on on the equipment. So you might have like a a little bit of a stiffer front end to try to, you know, let the sled kind of absorb some of that energy. Where if you're on more of like a, a Park City or a Whistler, more of like a free-flowing track, you can kind of soften it up and kind of just, so there's
3: now did you go to the pyeongchang test yes okay what is that track like
4: very technical it's not a track that's going to put a lot of fear in people like whistler did whistler was like is a fear tactic people were just scared of the track um this track is very technical you can you can lose everything in curve two you can you can you know curve two and curve nine are going to be the two curves that are giving everyone the headaches
3: were there a lot of crashes at the test?
4: No, no. no. Crashing okay. crashing is, isn't really, a, I mean, it, it can still happen. I still saw some sleds go over, but it's not a thing to where it's like, you know, oh, God, I hope it don't crash here. Mm-hmm. Like, like, that's what Whistler was. It was like, hope it don't crash. Where this is like, I just hope I don't screw it up because it is so technical. So it's more driver's it's a dri- track? It's a driver's track, yeah. Whereas Whistler is... It's just a, scary. <laughs> it's a scary. Yeah, it's a it's, uh, it's a driver's track, but it's a driver's track at ninety five miles an hour. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: so technical, being a technical track, it's uh, where the mistakes happen is getting out of line, out of the line you. Yeah, want. yeah. Just, okay. just
4: you know, over driving or under under driving or under steering. You can kind of, you, you just. Some, some of the so cor- if
2: you if you overdrive you go too far up the wall
4: or yeah so okay. every every curve is completely different on just okay. the the basic concept of, of mm-hmm. driving so it's all trial and error uh, at this point um, you know some you try to push pressures out you try to I mean everything we do is in the pressure of the corner we, we can't steer unless we kind of build up some pressure in the sled Um it's, we don't have sharp, everyone thinks that we kind of have like a sharp edge that we're sliding on, so you can just kind of go into a corner and just steer and the sled will just go. It, it's not like an ice skate. We're actually on a, a rounded edge. That's kind right. of the, probably the
3: Would the it radius. almost be like the re, a reverse of a, an ice skate? Because the ice skate has the U edge. So this is going to be...
4: Yeah, so it's actually, it's in the bottom of it's probably like the, the radius of like a dime, what we're sliding okay. on. Okay. So it's kind of like a, a rounded edge. And so you have to, you can go into a corner and just try to steer and nothing's gonna happen because you're just on a rounded edge on ice. You're just gonna just slide up the track. So you have to let the sled in, kind of build up some pressure in the sled and then that's how you kind of release to, to come out where you want to. So if you just kind of let the sled go, it'll just kind of just fall out. And if it's, you know, you got double waves in there and you wanna make it one, you'll go in kind of build up some pressure so you stay high through the lull and you start building and then we feel that pressure start to build up in the second pressure you kind of will just
3: So when you're saying pressure, are you are we talking G-force kind yeah. of? Yeah, G-force. Yes. Okay. So it's
4: it's I mean
3: So it's physically the the It's
4: yeah. So so okay. bobsledders, a a good bobsled driver, believe it or not, has a very good butt. That's kind of what we <laughs> it, it's kind of what we say. It's it's that's where we feel most of, of the pressure. That's where, as a, as a pilot, you know, you can feel it in your hands in the D-rings, but where you really feel it is in the seat of your pants going down and really kind of feel that sled push you down and, and move you through. So as you go into a corner, you know when to steer based on, on kind of what you feel in the seat of your pants.
3: How much does it hurt going down?
4: Oh, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, It's a very... It's a violent ride. TV does not do this sport justice whatsoever it looks smooth it looks like we're just kind of on a nice perfectly groomed sheet of ice going down no it is a very violent ride um you know we have track crews that are are grooming this thing every you know six to nine inches at a time with a with a scraper tool they come and they'll just shave the ice and well each time they do that leaves a little groove so we're going down it's just vibrating all the way down there's no suspension there's no padding there's no none of that and so your head's hitting side to side and
3: so is head injury an issue it could be (laughs)
4: it's something that every driver thinks about yeah definitely i mean it's it's uh you know it's one of those things we want more research but we're all scared to get more research because it's one of those like what are I would love more research because, you know... You want to know. I, I would love to know because you see people have been in the sport for a long time and it's... You, you can see it's wear and tear. And, you know, i I'd like to have a family someday <laughs> and be able to, you know, be around. But it's, yeah, I mean, you, there's definitely some head trauma and I don't think it's only when we crash.
3: What other wear and tear
4: do you... Just on the body. I mean, yeah. your body gets beaten up. Uh, you know, guys... We have 250 quarter inch needles on the bottom of our feet and we're jumping in that sled and we're all trying to get around each other to, you know, that choreography of getting us in. Guys are kicking each other and so guys are getting cut up and scraped and, um, you know, muscles, 5 Gs is a force. If you're not warmed up for that, it'll win every time, you know, so there's a lot of back problems, uh, you know, muscle cramps, hamstrings, stuff like that.
3: And you want me to go on that little, forget it. But it's fun. Yeah. So why do you do it? If you could beat up someone? I love it.
4: I love it. It's, 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 you know, I've always wanted to be a race car driver. And this is kind of my, my outlet. I get to put my love of being a track athlete and racing into one. And so it's, until you walk into the opening ceremonies of an Olympic Games, you'll do some crazy stuff to get back to that point.
2: How do you pick your team?
4: That's (laughs) a, it's a very unique situation as an athlete to pick a team and you you live and die by your decisions as a driver. You know, I pick a team and they don't perform. I don't go to the Olympics. A team picks me because it's, it's a double, you know, it goes both ways. Oh, so they, do they They can pick, they... pick a driver just as much as a driver picks them. You know, if I went to a guy, I'm like, hey, I want to I wanna push through that guy. I guy's no, I'm sorry, I'm going with somebody else. They, they can easily do that. And, you know, if... They pick a driver, and he doesn't drive well. They don't go to the games. So, this year, I went with speed—just absolute raw speed. I have three guys that ran track in college. Uh, well, one ran track at junior college, but he is the—he uh, finished fourth in the London in the London Olympics in the 100-meter dash. So, I went with a guy who ran track at. A uh, hurdler who ran track at Georgetown and then ran pro in Japan, and then I have a guy that was actually went to my rival college, I went to the rival university, University of Idaho. He was a sprinter, um, so we'll see. He starts running his mouth about his school. We'll see how long he's on my team.
3: I, I was going to ask, his personality. Personality
4: is huge. Yeah. We're we're stuck together for the next four months, whether we like it or not. And I will go with a guy that might be a little bit slower. But we will push and train hard together, and we will buy into my philosophy of a team over having a you know a faster crew of four individuals because they're not going to be successful. And we've we've seen it time and time again on on our team um, of you can't. This is not a, as as much as it as an it's an individual sport. Every, it's every man for himself. It's a team sport at the same time. And you need to go from trying to beat absolutely everyone when we're doing our single man stuff, our single man pushes and all of our testing, to then getting with the crew, buying into that that system, and then bringing them together and really trying to take on the world together. Because that's what it's going to take to be a medalist at this next Olympics. You know, We're all brand new teams together, and we need to figured out now more than ever you know we don't we don't have the teams like we did last olympics where it's and there's a lot of veterans to kind of emulate and follow and see what they're doing and we're all brand new guys and so trying to instill that kind of the the standard that that steve holcomb has kind of put on this and his teams have always been kind of when you're on the top of the hill like he was a metal favorite no matter where he was starting you know he we were he was having the worst year of his career a couple years ago and he still stood on top of the hill and people were like he's a metal favorite like that's just what he was that was his persona like that's you knew that he was always gonna challenge you for a medal. and that's what we need to now kind of to keep that legacy going that's kind of what we need to do as as a program is we need to pick up the slack and be a metal favorite every time we touch that hill
2: So what is your team philosophy and how do you get that kind of presence as an athlete?
4: If you're on my team you love it, if you're not on my team you hate it. It, It's it's a it's kind of a double-edged sword. I'm really big in just buying into the team. Uh, I'm um, like I have a master's degree in leadership and coaching so I took everything I learned from that and put it into the four guys that we have in a sled. and it's just, you know, how can we work together, buy in together, uh, motivate each other, uh, hold each other accountable, because you can't go to the Olympic Games with only three guys that really, really want it, and one guy that's kind of like, okay, that'd be fun to do. Like, this this isn't a hobby. Like, this is, this is a business. And my favorite quote is, it's not show friends, it's show business. And I say that to my guys all the time. It's, you know... To, to win a medal you you might have to you might have to lose a battle to win the war you know so kind of just go out there keep your head down let's stay together and let us work um, you know i like my team kind of always being together you know i don't want outside influences like it's weird like i was saying it's a very individualized sport and if you have our guys kind of you know on my team that are with Athletes that are maybe trying to take their spots, I don't, I don't need them to kind of have that uh, negative negativity kind of around them. So I will, I will, I'm going to be kind of like a.
3: Are um, you a dad for this sort
4: of group? Kind of, that's kind yeah. of where the driver has to be. Yeah, yeah, you have to kind of be the guy that has to watch you're you're a coach a manager you know you're doing finances you're doing kind of travel you're doing all kinds of the stuff to make sure that this team is successful and you're not you're not going to let somebody mess that up
3: actually it sounds more like a mom
4: yeah that's what i didn't, I didn't want to say it right. it's uh mama bear is here and i'm gonna hold down the fork it's uh but it's it's yeah, I mean, some athletes work really well together and some don't. You just have to be able to see see that. And kind of when I'm putting teams together, some guys will go, you know, I want uh, I want number one, two, and three breakman. Well, maybe one, two, and three looks really good on paper, but two, five, and six work really well together. They, they really, you know, they train together. They work really well. And I guarantee those guys will, will give – that, that first crew will run for their money and will probably make it longer in, in the season because they're actually working for each other.
2: Yeah, the sum greater than the parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. How hard is it to jump in from the side into
4: the sled? <laughs> it's a, like as a driver as a brakeman?
2: No, the brakeman gets to like jump in.
4: But I mean but there's two side guys that have to
2: get Yeah, to yeah, well. exactly.
4: So the but two they're, side they're, pushers, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a controlled chaos. I mean, I have a guy that's 230 pounds getting in, and another guy that's 220 pounds trying to get in and, like... but um, Yeah, yeah. like, make Do it... Do you
3: specialize on a side?
4: Generally. Yeah. yeah.
3: I, I don't know why I never yeah. thought of that before. Yeah. That, of but, course, you're going to be a
1: left or you're a are be a right. left-side
4: guy or right-side guy, because it's, it's, you need a few thousand trips down yeah. to make it second nature to where you're just kind of going. And so that's what we were doing today is, like, we were doing dry land stuff, working on our timing working on that kind of team cohesiveness, really working together, trying to bring that team together. You know, even though it's just mindless stuff, like let's just do hits on the push track. Let's just work on timing. We're there, we're joking together, we're having a good time. We're creating that bond that's going to kind of keep us going later on into the season where we can actually, because once you're in a small little European town and (laughs) the internet's bad and the food isn't, you know, isn't what we're used to, tempers start to get charged up and I need to make sure that they're all kind of together.
2: Do you ever play jokes like whoopee cushions
4: in the um in the so I, my brakeman, it's not even funny jokes like they're not even funny <laughs> like it's they're more obnoxious like you'll come home he will just have like take a handful of ibuprofen and just like throw it in your bed and then, <laughs> like it's not even funny but he does it and it pisses me off it gets me so upset it's like why is there a bunch of ibuprofen and tylenol on my sheets? <laughs> but that's do you it.
3: talk at all
2: during a race? Yes. Okay.
4: But it's very unconventional. <laughs> <laughs> do Don't, you know
2: what's coming out of your mouth? Yeah. Okay. They
4: couldn't put it on public TV. Okay. Um, but yeah, chances are, like practice usually I'll just sing my way down, just having good I'm just having a good time. You know, I'll kind of. What I learned, I got to go up with the uh, Air Force Thunderbirds, and so that was the probably one of the coolest things, besides Garth Brooks, <laughs> that I ever got to do. And to listen to how they communicate to one another. I mean, we're not talking to each other whatsoever. So right? you're not. So you're I, not telling I, them anything. No, I'm not telling them anything. They they know. But the they tr- even hear you. They can hear me.
2: Okay.
4: I can't hear them. Right. Yeah. Okay. If I do, I'll tell them to. Know, lock it up like I can't you're distracting me I only I can speak (laughs) and so yeah when I'm going down you know if I'm having a good run or sometimes they'll hear me just yelling at the track having fun with it and I try to have as much fun with this it's it's a sport we're supposed to have fun like we don't get I don't get paid enough to stress out about this thing so like I'm gonna have fun with it and I'll in practice I'll sing my way down if I see a coach or something on the side or I see somebody kind of just walking in the sport like when you're going 90 miles an hour so often it starts to kind of slow down in your mind so i can i can see coaches and stuff on the side filming i'll just yell at them as we go by you know i'll, I'll tell my brakeman where the coaches will be and so as we're going through and they know where we are we'll just all start yelling in the sled as we go past them um so i like to have a little bit of fun but
2: what was it like when the courses started slowing down for you
4: it happens every week. So day 1, yeah. you're going to seem like you are just at warp speed and you're out of control. And then you start going to day 2, day 3, day 4 okay. and it starts to slow down in your hands a little bit and you can actually start you know seeing where you want the sled to go and start putting the sled in different spots and reacting.
2: When you when you go to a track, how do you go to read the course to figure out what how you need we to do? We walk track
4: the track it. every We're single day. Okay. Yeah.
2: Oh, every every day cuz every day is different. Every
4: day, yeah. The track is kind of a living breathing thing it's to us it's every day it's completely different it will you know they'll sometimes change in how you get onto a corner you can see where they shave a bunch of ice out of an entrance or out of an exit and it'll completely change how we're doing it uh how we're how we're driving that corner so we need to go drive look at every corner and, and so we are very very meticulous as we walk up to kind of see every inch of that track
2: when you choose your brakeman man for the two man is it one of your it's one mans, of my four man guys yeah okay do you ever rotate them out or uh
4: yeah yeah okay. so I, I will usually won't make one guy go double duty all all season long oh, okay. usually you know maybe one or two weeks and then throw another guy in there give the guy a rest for the two man race just do one race that week and then go back into it um because like you we were saying the sport is even though it's a 50 second ride downhill and you're only running 50 meters guys get out of the sled and they are like struggling to take their helmets off they can't breathe they you know it's it's like you played a full 2 hour football game in that 50 seconds
0: thank you Lauren and Nick and as a note While I was editing this episode, they were both competing in one of the IBSF World Cup competitions that helped determine who's going to the Olympics. Lauren was
2: brakeman for Alana Myers Taylor and together they broke the women's bobsled start record and got the silver medal. Nick Cunningham also got a silver in the two man with brakeman Ryan Bailey. So congratulations everyone. And we hope this is just the first of many podium celebrations. I wish after we talked Saw their passion and saw their excitement and saw how much time and effort they put into this sport, how much it costs, and how athletic everybody is. It, they, these people just are crazy amazing athletes for yes. this little tiny sport that is really cool and really fun to watch.
3: And I would think would should be more popular.
2: Yeah, you would think because it's like, I, like, like Nick said, it's NASCAR on ice.
3: It's kinda, going kinda, down yeah. a very steep hill very fast, but people don't do this at home, so I no. think there's that it, that distance between it. It's not like, oh, I know how difficult it is. No one has a clue. I mean, you do because you did the. Uh, yeah, I did it at like the experience. experience. But how many people have had that opportunity?
2: Right. And and the experience we had was like half the track or three quarters of the track. And it was only 45 seconds or so. And we weren't going nearly as fast as these people go. Um, right. But you did get a feel for what it was like and just how insane it must be at top speed. And how just like the reactions and how quick you have to be. I, I just didn't understand how. They
3: do it. And this this Olympics is not going to help that because, as we were, were saying before, it's going to be wall-to-wall Steve Holcomb, which, let me tell you something. He was amazing. I remember all the coverage uh, the last time around, talking about his surgery. He had a book. He was an amazing athlete, and he deserves to be honored. But these guys don't deserve to be overshadowed by that. Yeah, and that's what's, I know I'm going to be frustrated with what NBC does because we're not going to see Nick's personality. And he was fantastic.
0: Oh, he, was he was so much fun. So
3: fun. And Lauren and her enthusiasm in trying this is a second time around. And, and when we spoke to Josh Williamson a couple of weeks ago and how, how excited he was to be this uh, new kid in the sport. And we're not getting that in the coverage. And that makes me angry.
2: So NBC, if you're listening. Talk
3: to these guys. They're
2: fantastic. Yeah. They're a great interview. Yes. (laughs) All on their own. All Mm -hmm. on their own. (laughs) So
3: we were speaking of Josh. Yes. Let's do our little Josh update.
2: Yeah. uh, Yeah. So
3: So when we spoke to him back, I guess it was the end, end of September. He had not yet been in the sled. So not only has he been in a sled, he has been to the North American Cup competition uh, on the Whistler track, which we've talked about. And he was racing with a very young pilot by the name of Hunter Church, who's only 20 years old himself. Well, they did fantastic. They got a gold and a silver in the four-man competition. So hooray for Josh. So exciting. So exciting. So exciting
2: for him. That is awesome. Sweet oh way him. to go. I
3: found not about this. So. Um, and going back to the expense of the sport, uh, Josh has set up a GoFundMe page to continue his training. So for if you just uh, go on to GoFundMe and you look up Josh Williamson, his page will come up. So we are big fans. So yeah. if you're interested in supporting him and supporting uh, US Bobsled in general, we, we definitely support that. Yes, that's sure yes and then the other big story this week also having to do with bobsled and money
2: yeah so and and you might think that we are a u.s centric podcast not the case because one of one of the other big stories out of the world of bobsled is going to be team gb or team great britain which has been having a ton of problems lately in terms of mismanagement. And um, earlier this fall, they told the women that they don't have enough money to fund them to go to the Olympics. And their big driver is Micah McNeil, and she won a medal. She won a medal at the Youth Olympic Games,
3: and she looks mad too.
2: Oh, yeah, wouldn't you be? Oh, hey, we have enough money for the boys. We don't have enough money for you. Very mm-hmm. talented, up-and-coming-the-world in driver who's doing pretty well. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it really is frustrating to not just be in an expensive sport but to be told that, hey, what little funding we would give you, we're going to take away. So she started to go fund me, page to buy her own sled, which to me is just crazy. And she was asking for 30,000 pounds and – Yes. That's what about forty-five, fifty thousand dollars or so. Um, uh,
3: yes, I think it's yes.
2: Okay, and, and to, so that she could she could get her own sled, uh, compete even without Team GB funding. Uh, I right. think she. And yeah,
3: subsequently, yeah, the uh, head of uh, Great Britain bobsled has been asked to leave.
2: Right, and now magically, there's money for right for her team. So that's great it's it's also great that she got some funding. Uh it, that her GoFundMe page was was overfunded, I believe, which is yes. You know, and it's not like that money's going to go to waste now because it's still really expensive to travel around as much as you need to. Um there are only 16 bobsled tracks around the world and so if you aren't located in like Germany or Switzerland, you are really stuck traveling a lot and paying a lot of money to fly your bobsled around. And, and th- I you right. know, we didn't even get into talking about how, how you ship that thing, but that cannot be cheap. It,
3: it, it's definitely not cheap, and it's definitely not easy. And it sounds like, it felt like Team GB is like FIFA with this money issue, right. you know, the, the soccer federation that... Clearly, the women are second class citizens, but there is so much more going on. So I hope we hear more about this and the fallout. And I wonder if this is happening in other countries as well. So I hope yet again, NBC, if you're listening, when you talk about bobsled coverage, there's a lot of other stories that would be really important for people to hear about.
2: All right. Um, It's trivia time. You have, some... you have
3: yeah. some bobsled I trivia. I have
2: bobsled trivia for you. Me too. Oh, excellent, I excellent. I know. I I live in fear that one day we're going to have the same question. So I have a bobsled question for you, and okay. that is, who was the first U.S. woman to compete with men? Now, did you know this? The uh, Right after Sochi, um, the International Bobsled Federation approved mixed gender, racing as a as really a thing? yes oh good we don't have the same question yeah no. so yeah now they have uh competitions where you can race i don't know if they have one woman and three men uh, or um two and two but there's definitely um races with mixed genders now and wow. it, it, it'd be interesting to see if this could get on the Olympic program eventually, because they're so yeah. now they're very concerned about gender balance.
4: And right. um,
2: that would be an interesting and, you know, we have all these mixed teams and we, there's mixed uh, doubles curling now. So I wonder if down the road we're going to see um, more mixed, sports mixed gender in general. Mi- yeah. Mixed gender sports. Huh. So
3: interesting. OK, um, so this is a female bobsledder that competed on a men's sled like yes yes one of four
2: man's four yes
3: well i assume she's gonna was it the driver
2: it was the driver
3: oh what is her name her first name is jamie right
2: so uh no it is not jamie grubel poser
3: Um, Was it, was it Elena Myers? It was Elena Myers
2: Taylor. Yes. We did meet her or you met her, but she was at the, uh, the Team USA 100 days out event at Winters Fest sponsored by Hershey. Um, Yes. uh,
3: But briefly talked to her because I talked to her. Well, I tried to talk to her pusher, Asia Evans, but the poor thing had laryngitis And Elena was making fun of her for having laryngitis. She was, they were fantastic. (laughs) And they gave Asia Ricola. So I feel like I've done my bit for the bobsled, but yes.
2: In September, 2014, the international federation was going to allow mixed gender crews to compete in four man. And so, um, that November she led a crew to third place in the U S trials and, uh, she did it with having only four days of training in a four-man sled. So, what's your question?
3: Okay. What country has the most overall bobsled medals?
2: Oh, my gosh. I would say Germany.
3: No. <gasps> Germany has the most gold medals.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, my but gosh. But it has Ooh, the most overall? overall. Well, that's not the U.S., is it? Nope. No, because we just were in a drought for ages. Right. Uh, Austria?
3: So close.
2: Italy? (laughs) Wrong direction. Switzerland?
3: Switzerland. Ah. Switzerland has 31 medals overall.
2: Wow. Germany has...
3: See, here's the trick, though, with Germany. If you add Germany, East Germany and west german medals they would have the most overall
2: oh okay so it's really the east germany west germany bit where you know right if you wanted but to combine just, them all today together
3: right but just germany unified still has the most gold medals Get and if you think about town. all the olympics that germany as a unified country was not um participating in, they were participating as East and West. Right. They still have 10 gold medals.
0: That is incredible.
3: Yeah, there was this whole stretch where they just dominated. But Switzerland, 31 medals overall.
2: Wow. Well, I'm excited to see what they bring to Pyeongchang.
3: Oh. The Germans and the Swiss bring in the speed.
2: That's right. (laughs) Well, On that note, we will... Hey, bobsledder butt! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's time for me and Allison to take our bobsledder butts out of here. (laughs) (laughs) We will talk to you again next week with another episode.
3: Yeah, and I'm shaking my bobsledder butt. butt.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll talk to you next week, everybody. (laughs) Have a good week.
0: Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olym and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame
4: alive. Mama Bear is here and I'm going to hold down the fork.